Well, good morning. So you may not realize this, but we're all being carried by prayer. Uh, Jesus uh, is, he prayed regularly for those he was coming to seek and save. We also know that the Father God allows that the incense that is in his throne room be the prayer of the saints themselves. And so that's a beautiful thing to know that prayer is what undergirds uh, what happens in our lives. And so you are invited uh, to participate in praying for what God's doing in this region and this area, and in particular for LEFC, and that's at 8 a.m. in room A6. Uh, so if you are new here, my name is Tony. I'm pastor here at LEFC, and we are in the midst of a series in the book of Genesis the reason why we're doing Genesis is because it's become increasingly obvious and profound that as people and generations keep getting further and way, further away from understanding biblical context, without Genesis, you wouldn't know what sin is. You wouldn't know who God is. You wouldn't know who we are. And you wouldn't know that there is a God who designed us to have a relationship with them and that God went to great lengths to restore that relationship that was broken. And so that's why we're in Genesis is because we believe it's important for us to, to fully realize and understand so that as people talk to us about faith, that we can go back and, under, and put into context that there is a story of love from our God the Father and how he redeems us and restores a relationship with us. And so with that being said, we're gonna be in the book of Genesis in chapter three today, so I'm gonna ask you to turn there. Our ushers will be glad to provide you a Bible if you need one. Uh, they just simply put your hand up and they will hand you one. We also utilize the YouVersion Bible app. If you go into that Bible app and you tap on events, you'll find LEFC there as one of the churches. Just tap on that and you'll see the scriptures that we're gonna be reading today. The last two weeks, while we've been in Genesis chapter two, uh, we looked at how God created humankind, mankind in his image beautifully, uniquely created among all things that has life and breath. And what's beautiful about it is that with perfection, everything in regards to the role of humanity and how we care for the earth, how we interrelate with each other, how we interrelate with God is beautiful, perfect, unhindered, and actually joyful. And what we're gonna discover today is that Genesis chapter three literally turns the page in the narrative of creation. You can say that it's chapter three that causes the rest of scripture to be written. If you don't have chapter three, the necessity of a redemptive story is not there. But because sin enters the world, we then need the redemptive story and therefore the rest of Genesis and the rest of scripture all the way to Revelation is written in response, in God's response to what happens in chapter three. As we looked over the last two weeks about Imago Dei, the image of God, that we are created in that image, we've seen how male and female is the perfect picture together of, of what God is like and understanding his character and the way he operates. We give a much better reflection together as male and female. And then today we're gonna to discover marriage is part of that and then how even within sin, that becomes hindered. And so we're gonna to read together and I have a couple that's going to read that text with us this morning. Good morning. My name is Jordan Snader. My wife Lindsay and I have attended LEFC for about 12 years and we have the privilege of reading the text today. So we will be reading Genesis 3 in its entirety. Starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I had commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So much and so little time to talk about it. (laughs) Honestly, as we were preparing for this sermon, we were talking, you know, there's probably four sermons in this one uh, simple chapter of scripture. We're going to accomplish it as best as we can in the 35 minutes of time for this. But let me begin with, in the first four verses of chapter three, we learn something about our adversary. We have one. And we know from scripture that his aim is to seek to kill, steal, and destroy. He desires to eliminate. He does not desire to build up. When God created Adam and Eve and creation, it was meant to be something that was life-giving and building up. The adversary has the opposite desire. He seeks to take that which is not his. He seeks to kill and he seeks ultimate destruction. He was the one that brought the rebellion in heaven that happened along with all of the angels uh, that, that chose to go with them, a third of the angels. They chose to go with this adversary and he established a kingdom here on this earth. He brought death to all living things by initiating that rebellion. He seeks now to destroy the relationship between us and God, and he'll do whatever he can to create a wedge between us and him. What I also would suggest is that we should study right here the playbook of Satan. If you were involved in sports at all and there was any kind of preparation for an opponent, you would study their tendencies. You would study how they like to score. You would study how they like to defend so that you can get the edge in the competition. So too, our enemy has a playbook 
And we should know how he behaves. We should know how he operates so that we can then know how to respond in kind. But it's true, he knows us as well. Satan is cunning. He is cunning and he likes to begin needling within each of our hearts a questioning of God. I mean, look at verse one. How did he question God in the very first verse of chapter three? Because these are the first words of Satan that we have in scripture. Did God really say? Do I need to go further? Did God really say? That term really matters because it's the slight questioning of anything that God may have said or done. Because what the word really, how we employ it within our language is that if you've got a, a paragraph or a statement or a charge or a law or a rule, the natural tendency of us is to find the loophole. And the term really is giving the invitation to finding the loophole, right? Did God really say, don't eat uh, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. Uh, so he's kind of blurring it a little bit. Well, there was one. To which Eve responded, there was one. Yes, there is one. But did God really say? Was that really what he said? So it's the first time that probably Adam or Eve had ever considered a questioning of God. So there is a little space that's being created here by Satan in his playbook. He does that with us today, does he not? As we interact with scripture and we try to employ how to live a life that is honoring to God, did God really say that we shouldn't live this way? Did God really say dot, 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 fill it in? Did God really mean that for all time? Or is that just then? You get my point? Satan is still using the same strategy today. Cause a little questioning of God and then he can get you to employ a path that will be destructive. You see, Satan and his forces have studied each of us and they know our tendencies. Now, Satan himself may not even know your name. He may not even know you exist. He doesn't have the omniscient ability of God. But he has a slew of forces. And somebody within those ranks knows you. And they know your weaknesses. They've studied them. And then they employ their playbook against you. Those forces are going to appeal to your pride. Because they know that if they can get you to shift the glory for being upon God, to want you, for you to want the glory to go to you, then they have accomplished what they wanted. Did God really say that? Does God really want you to abide by these rules that were written 2,000 years ago? You see, it's not a new thing that the enemy appeals to pride. After all, it is our pride that causes us to say, well, shouldn't I get some credit? Shouldn't I be the one to like pound my chest and look at me? As soon as Satan gets us to just want to take a little bit of the glory, yes, sir. he's got you right where he wants you. Because when you get a little bit of the glory... We enjoy it. And we play with it. We think on it. We dwell on it. And then all of a sudden, it's not enough glory. And we want a little bit more of the glory. That's how Satan works. He's a deceiver as well. He loves to take things that are true and bring a slight twist to them. He likes to misrepresent, slight misrepresentation to, re, to eventually lead to a huge miscalculation. In this situation, he quotes something that is true. Yes, there is a statement of not being able to eat from a tree. 
But he gives a little bit of twist to it by suggesting that maybe the way Adam and Eve understood the motive of God and that rule is inaccurate. So what does he do? In verse 4, he says, You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now my question to you, is Satan telling the truth there? Yeah, he is. They will know good and evil just like God. But what he does there is put it in a context that the reason why God did not want them to know what he knows is because he wanted to be selfish with being God. That it's all about looking out for himself. What Satan doesn't get honest about is the true motive of God is to protect us from knowing what he knows. Because he knows it will be devastating to us. He knows that it will create chaos among us. And that's the motive of God. But Satan starts creating doubt as to God just doesn't want you to be as powerful as him. So therefore, self-serving. So Satan is appealing to the very thing that he did. He was self-serving, which is why Satan was kicked out of heaven. And now he's getting human beings to to start thinking self-serving thoughts. Then they will eventually start interpreting God incorrectly in terms of what benefits them. Therefore, God must have some hidden motives that he's told us we can't eat of that. You see, what ultimately is true out of the playbook of Satan, is that he wants you to trust you. What Satan wants is for you to trust you. Which then means you're ultimately trusting yourself over God. Because God might have some ulterior motives. Well, it was quite appealing Eve took of the fruit, eventually Adam did as well. And there were two immediate effects of that sinful choice. Two immediate effects of sin. One, our relationship with God is now broken. It was whole, it was intact, it was not separated, there was no hindrance, there was no shame, there was no fear, it was completely whole. And secondly, our relationship with each other is now broken. There was no brokenness before that moment. At the very moment that decision was made to trust herself, eventually, in that moment, mistrust is birthed, which breaks relationship, which breaks relationship with God and breaks relationship with each other. Now, The first effect, if you will, that happens in this moment when you see in verse six and and following. uh, So she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And at that moment, the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is where my wife got really nervous as to my preparation. Nakedness is something that for some reason creates a reality of our brokenness. Verse 25 of chapter two, look at how the first time nakedness was spoken of. In verse 25, after talking about Adam realizing how beautiful Eve was, saying this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall become woman, for she was taken out of man. They now are to lead their father and mother and be united to each other, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. So there's something about not having clothes prior to the fall that showed and was evidence that there was no brokenness. And that once sin came, nakedness realized is the result of sin entering the world and now there's something that creates fear and shame in nakedness. So it's the first sign that something has been broken that they can't look at each other without feeling the need to hide or to cover. 
Prior to that, they could look without any sense of guilt or concern. But now, there is a level of understanding that by sin, there can be critique, there can be judgment, there can be, I'm not liking who I am. Therefore, hiding and covering becomes the result. Look at verse eight. It says, the man and his wife then heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, that's a pretty amazing thought. You know, when we were, before we built this addition onto the building, our offices were in modulars. And when you could hear, you could hear somebody walking from the far side of the modular to the front side of the modular. And you could tell by the walk who it was. It's just part of how life was. It is when you spend time with people. Imagine knowing what the sound of God is like. Imagine knowing, oh, those are God's footsteps. They've already covered themselves in verse seven because they found the brokenness between each other to create shame and fear. Now God comes and the fig leaves were not enough. They hid among the plant life. Again, to hide and to cover. Broken relationship between each other and broken relationship with God. But here's another aspect of sin. And again, things are just happening real quick that we now know and realize is just common among us. That when they are called out and, they, and it's clear that they have a look of guilt on their faces and by their behavior, they are guilty. God says, why are you hiding? Where are you? Verse 10, I heard you in the garden, Adam said, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? All right, so those of you who are parents in the room, think of that moment when your children were younger, and maybe they are young right now, and they have that look. You don't know what they did, you just know they did something. And you just know. And so, why are you looking like that? What did you do? And you get to the point of it. And then what happens next in this story, you might also say has happened over and over in your household if you have multiple children. Look at what it says in verse 12 after God said, did I not command you to eat of that? And then, to, and then it says in verse 12, the woman you put me here with, <laughs> she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. The woman responded, oh, there was a serpent that caused me to eat it. Verse 13, the blame game has just begun. Yes, sir. Now, Adam was pretty, what should I say, stupid. <laughs> to start with, a subtle jab at God. This woman you put me here with, I mean, he had to be thinking, did I just say that? Because that was not wise to say to the creator himself. And then he blames Eve. Then Eve gets looked at and then she blames the serpent. And God didn't play the blame game. He immediately began to go at work in correcting that which is broken. I think we have to realize as we go into the rest of this text that God did not hesitate. Judgment and justice were immediate, but so was his plan for redemption. It was immediate. Let's look at this, how this happens. And so he begins in verse 14 when he says, so because, to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. So God cursed the animal that Satan possessed. 
So we don't know what kind of behavior the snake or serpent had or posture that snake or serpent had prior to this moment. We just know that now he crawls among the dust of the earth because he was the creature that Satan utilized. Verse 15, though, gives the curse directly or the judgment to Satan. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Again, Hebrew words are the same there, crush and strike. But the point is that there will be a day that Satan ultimately will be destroyed. And it will be by the offspring of the woman. That's a first messianic prophecy in all of scripture. It's the first time that God gives a little bit of a clue that says, what you guys have just done to create a mess of creation, I am going to undo. Continuing on. So the judgment's now given over Satan and over this creature, the serpent. And then verse 16, he speaks to the woman and then he's gonna also speak to the man in verse 17. So look at this. Again, these are the judgments. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it. And all, all the days of your life, it will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. Uh, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So Satan's given the death verdict, ultimate destruction. But let's now look at the judgments towards humankind. He begins with speaking to Eve. What was meant to be without burden, but to be delightful is now burdensome. So sin's ultimate consequences, what we have to look at as we look at what God says to Eve and says to Adam is that all the things listed there were originally assigned by God to be joyful. Were originally assigned by God to be uh, delightful between us and for us. But now they are burdens. Procreation is the first one he mentions. We are told in Genesis 1 and 2 about this idea of being fruitful and multiply and filling the earth. So it was God's charge that it was meant that we're supposed to procreate. But now, as it says here, childbearing, that very charge that was supposed to be delightful is now going to be painful, burdensome. It's not how it was originally supposed to be. Then, it says something else. And, and this is a, a real difficult passage to, to teach here, but let's just go out because it's in the word. It says to the woman again, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Again, this is a judgment. This is not supposed to be positive. So what was originally designed to be a reflection of Trinitarian oneness, that idea of husband and wife being together as one, is now under a broken form. You don't see within the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, anything where you would sense from Jesus or the Spirit that they are jealous of the Father. You don't see anything from Jesus or the Spirit that wishes they had some of what the role of the Father was. In fact, what you hear is complete oneness and unity. And Jesus did not consider equality to be the issue at all. We get that from Philippians 2, that that's not where Jesus was at. He willfully submitted to the Father because of his oneness with the Father and his love for the Father. And none of us think poorly or lesser of Jesus in his submission. He did not consider his valuing to be lost by submitting to the direction of the Father. So there is a beauty by how the Father is head over the triunity of God. And, that, and there's beauty in that and oneness in it that is 
unbreakable. When Adam and Eve were first created as husband and wife, that relationship was unbreakable. It was designed to operate like the triunity of God. And when sin entered, everything changed. Because now there is a desiring of difference. We don't, we're not given the list of all the ways that manifests, but it says that, that when a woman desires for a husband, it's not a good thing. It's going, to, it's going to create chaos. It's going to cause some kind of forms of jealousy. It's not good. In fact, you get the same pattern of this talk, talking with Cain in chapter four of Genesis and verse seven, when it says, sin desires for you, Cain. It desires for you, and you're going to need to rule over it. And we know Cain's character. It was not good. So what you see here is this desiring somehow is gonna create some kind of brokenness between the two of them. And then this idea of the husband ruling over her, that's also broken because how mankind rules is like dominion and oppression and harmful, self-seeking. The kind of rule that God rules with is like what Jesus, when it said about Jesus in John chapter 14, that when all power and authority had been given to him, what did he do? He washed feet. He humbled himself and washed feet. He became like a slave. That's how he handled power and authority. That's not how mankind likes to rule. We like to oppress. We like to control. We like to be unquestioned. So again, the judgment is not good. The desire for your husband and him ruling over, it's both broken and how that operates. And it creates chaos in relationships. That's why even in the best of husband and wife relationships, it takes a tremendous amount of work. A tremendous amount of work to be humble and constantly looking out for the, uh, each other because Internally, we are wired to want to be self-seeking. But now with brokenness of sin, it harms the marriage relationship. Another thing that is also harmed is the, is the earth itself. That even sin affected the earth that what was able to grow without, with very little effort now takes tremendous effort and it's not a guarantee. I have lived in the center of our country for a lot of my younger years of life and went through an eight-year period of severe drought. And I can tell you, the earth was difficult to farm. Pestilence, drought, and weeds and tares caused years of suffering for not only the farmers and trying to earn a living, but for the world as they were trying to survive the productive capabilities being lost for a season of time. What used to be easy is now difficult and it takes sweat to bring about the provisions of food. But here's the worst judgment that God gives. Look at the end of verse 19. It's the worst of it all. Since from the ground you were taken, for dust you are, and dust you will return. Now for us, we can't relate to what that felt like for Adam and Eve because they had never seen anything die. They had not seen a single plant die. They had not seen an animal die. They had not seen another human being die. So for the idea that that which they were created out of, and they knew that they were created out of dust, that now God is saying, from dust you came, dust you will return. There's gonna be an end. That was the greatest curse of them all. What could have been hardly conceived is now their end. So after God pronounces his judgments, then what's gonna become the activity of God? Let's look in verse 20. So Adam names his wife Eve because she'll become the mother of all living. But in verse 21, the Lord God then made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. 
And the Lord God said, the man has now become like us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from this tree of life and eat and live forever. Basically saying it would be bad being sinful and being able to live forever. But see what God did here? Remember what the first thing was in response to sin was they realized they were naked and they needed to cover up? Because that's what sin did. It created mistrust. It created insecurity. It struggled, and now all of a sudden identity issues come into play. Shame now is, is prevalent. And so they clothed themselves with all that they could at that moment, which just simply leaves. But God does something here that is the first of its kind. God is the first to spill blood. It says he took skins and covered them. Because of their sin, they needed covered. And it's not just subtle imagery that God used blood from skins to be able to cover their shame. This is part of God's story that he's gonna unleash for the rest of scripture. That God uses blood to cover over sins. Sins can only be paid for and sins consequences can only be paid for by blood, period. And God was the first to spill it so that he could cover their shame. Just in case you think that this is just some idea on my part, let me highlight three different scriptures that specifically say that blood is the key to covering over sins. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11, it says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So in Leviticus, it's saying that to take the blood of a creature... And then to sacrifice it on an altar was able to cover over sin. Albeit temporarily, but it was able to cover over sin. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 states, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Period. You cannot be forgiven for the sin that each of us inherited and now have operated on, we cannot see any kind of coverage or payment for that unless there is blood. But here's the problem. Creatures' blood is not sufficient. It is only temporal. And God knew that, which is why he said in verse 15 of Genesis 3 that there would be an offspring that would come that will crush the head of the snake. All blood sacrifices prior to that hindered the snake, but it never crushed him. But there was a sacrifice and a blood spilt that crushed him. And 1 John 1, 7 says this, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So there's a restoration of relationship with one another by what? By the blood of Jesus, his son, which purifies us from all sin. That is the only way the sin that has earned us a judgment of death and all kinds of restorative needs, all of that can be accomplished by one sacrifice and that is Jesus. So Jesus restores us by his blood and he restores relational brokenness as that verse in 1 John says. He restores the brokenness between each other but also between us and God. He also then, through his restorative work, can bring purpose now to our family again. That which was broken before now can be brought back to life and restored. We can also then trust now by the relationship of that restorer, we can now trust in the provision because he promises to provide for us, to care for us, to guide us so that we can have a sustainable life. And... Regarding the curse itself of death, he gives us hope beyond that death. That we will have life for all of eternity for those who have been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. I want us to turn to conclude here to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This puts it into perspective. 
The first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam being Adam in the garden. The second Adam being Jesus who comes and lives the life that the first Adam failed to live in. So verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15 says this. For as in Adam, the original Adam, all die. So in Christ, the second Adam will be made alive. Skip to verse 45. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man was of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are also those of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. First Adam brings us a curse, brings us judgment, causes us all to be born with the sinful nature. The second Adam was not of the seed of Adam, was of the seed of God. And then he became the offspring of the woman. And therefore he came without the taintedness of sin. And then he lived the perfect life that Adam, the first Adam, failed to do. But the second Adam succeeded at. So as a result, the judgment of death was not due to Jesus. He did not have to die. But he chose death. So that by his blood, there becomes a perfect sacrifice to cover sins for all time, once and for all. It's not a temporal sacrifice or a temporal covering of blood. It's a once and for all covering by the blood of the lamb, Jesus. So we were given life, yes, by the first Adam, but we were also given death. But by the second Adam, we were given life and no death. Romans 6.23 says this. For the wages of our sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then we're told in Romans 10, 9, 10, that if we confess then with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For it is with our heart that we believe and are justified and it is with our mouths that we profess our faith and are saved. We've earned our death. But God restores and God writes a different narrative through the blood of Jesus Christ. In the same way he provided skins to cover over the shame of sin for Adam and Eve, God now provides a blood covering for us by which we can find life and have hope for life eternal with him. We just simply have to confess that Jesus is the Lord of our life and believe in our heart that this work on the cross and his resurrection serves that greater end of conquering sin's consequences. Let's pray. So in the name of Jesus, we gather, we sing, and we pray, knowing that his blood is all sufficient and all we need for finding hope restored with our creator. So do your work now and by your spirit in our hearts to draw us to you. Thank you, Jesus. stand and respond to the gift of Jesus' blood. Measure up my words, your 
wash away. as we were talking last week and the week before and now even today, is that God has a restorative plan to restore all things back to its original glory and actually beyond. And so we're not going back to Eden when it comes to our eternal glory. Rather, we're going to something even better because it will be a gathering of those who trusted in Jesus. And so with that being said, here's a couple of descriptions of what we get to anticipate. Isaiah chapter 61 says this, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and has arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. And then Revelations chapter 3 Verse five says this, the one who is victorious will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father 
and his angels. You see, we will not be made naked again. Praise God, right? But we're going to be given clothes of glory. Clothes of glory that will never rust, fall apart, shrink, be stained or blotted. Not only that, it's clothes that reveal and reflect the glory of the creator. And we will be wearing those for all of eternity. If you would like to talk with someone today further about what it means to come under the blood of Christ, we'll have people in the encounter room to my left that would be glad to pray with you, to talk with you further. I will also be up front as well. The key thing is, is we want you to know that there is a name you can call upon. His name is Jesus. And his blood is sufficient. Amen. You are dismissed.